Investing in real estate so you can retire early with a passive income is the holy grail of property investment optimists. Aspiring first-time investors, along with those hoping to get beyond their first investment and pursue the dream of a growing portfolio, might listen to this podcast, but they're much more likely to devour the strategies and case studies that abound on other podcasts, YouTube property superstars, and even through TikTok influencers. But are we missing something by being so cynical? Can some of these strategies actually work for the everyday investor? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecast report which experts can you trust to get it right? TheElephantInTheRoom.com.au Today's guest is the host of one of Australia's most popular property podcasts, and he has heard literally hundreds of stories, strategies, and examples from, I quote, Australia's most innovative property experts. Tyron Shum started the Investory podcast back in 2017 and he's quite unique in that he himself doesn't claim to be a property expert. He doesn't even really work in the industry but he's long held a passion for real estate which led him to wanting to know the backstory behind the success of investors and that's why we've asked him to chat with us today. We're keen to know from all those stories of investment strategies which ones look like standing the test of time. Thank you so much for joining us Tyron. Thanks so much, Veronica and Chris, for having me on your podcast today. I'm excited to be here. And thank you so much for the wonderful intro. Tyrone, <laughs> good to have you um, on here. Absolutely. I mean, you have spoken to hundreds of people. You've, I don't know how many episodes you've done on the, your podcast. How many have you done? Over three to 400, I think it's been. 400, right? So, I actually, yeah, I just can't even count it anymore. What's going on? <laughs> yeah. It's sort of similar to us. I sort of think we've done more than 200 and then I'll be like, oh, we've done 240 or something. I don't even know how many we've done, right? We've done a lot, right? Um, and yeah, we've got lots of learnings over all those podcasts. And that's what Veronica and I, um, love right. about the podcast we get to meet and um, ask questions to people about topics we really care about and so you've done that something similar but you've kind of nutted down on a lot of people who've done property strategies so you know in your view what what do you think that um, what measures success in terms of um, the people you speak to in terms of your property investors well that's a really good question and I guess everyone defines success differently and each and every guest has sort of had their own sort of terminology behind success and I guess I can sort of speak on behalf of most people um, because I've interviewed them. I've seen sort of the common yeah. things behind success. And the common thing that I think success brings to a lot of people is usually time and family and the people that they want to spend time with. It's not necessarily about the most money or the most amount of properties. It's actually what can that actually give them in terms of freedom and also, I guess, um, time you know, that they can do. And it might be for charity things. It might be wanting to spend more time with the family or they want to build another business or pursue a a specific hobby. And that's what I think that a lot of the successful property investors have said to me, you know, that's what their success is and defined as because ultimately they're not going to say, oh, you know, I've got 100 properties and I feel like I'm really successful. But it doesn't mean anything once you actually have it there because it's like just an end goal to, you know, achieve what you want in terms of what you want for your life. It's funny you say that though because, and it's not just, you know, I've had a bit of a scan through um some of your most recent episodes and also you know i think in generally speaking in terms of the types of um headlines that attract people and the types of you know 
titles of, of episodes mm. and not, not only that but videos etc cetera, etc cetera. and and there's a theme that runs through yours and it does focus on the number of properties that people have bought over the period of time you know eight and ten years 18 and 10 years and so on so it's interesting that you say that that's how people as a com sort of a general theme that runs through that's how people are measuring success with the freedom that property success can give them but it still comes out all the time in terms of number of properties so how do they, is that because that's what people come into the the, mm. the space thinking that that's the answer is volume and then they discover other things or is it, I don't know, explain to me, I guess, that mismatch. Mm. Yeah, no, it's a really good question and I, I've, I've seen that happen. Like when we talk about, you know, working only four hours a week or, you know, just having spend more time with family, most people just don't click on that because they know what it's like. But what it is when they actually want to find out how did they actually get to there or why did they get to there, you know, these numbers really stand out because people want to understand, okay, if you want to have more time freedom, how is it that they actually will get there and what's the driving force behind it, which is their why usually. And in order to get to there, you've got to actually build a portfolio or, you know, follow some kind of strategy to be able to get there to achieve that type of success. So if we told them this is what you're going to get as the success, people are probably just going, yeah, you know, I know what that's like and that's what I kind of picture what it is. But if you tell them this is sort of round about the journey that you need to achieve to get to where it is, then that entices them more to actually look at it. Yeah. And, and that's pretty much like how I think as well too. It's like, yeah, I know what it's like to spend time with family, but I don't get enough of it. So what do I need to do to try and get there? And mm. I need to build X, Y, and Z portfolio or, you know, define exactly what the journey is. And that's Tom, what I think people are missing there. Yeah. Tom, mm. do you think the, the more... Uh, the bigger the uh, achievement or the faster the growth or the bigger the growth, um, the more likely someone is going to click on it. You know, like, you know, I, I grew my portfolio from 2 million to 8 million in, in three years. And that, that would actually, that headline and the getting rich quick, you know, actually would lead to more people downloading the episode and more people clicking, you know, wanting to follow that strategy because of the speed of it all. I think, I mean, just based on, I guess, as you've probably seen on the media as well, um, with magazines and so many yep. different headlines in the news and stuff like that, there's a lot of fear that's driven into a lot of these headlines and, you know, people want to be able to click on them because it entices you to, you know, read them. And as you know, there's tons and tons of podcasts out there. If you wrote, wrote something that's saying, oh, you know, 60-year-old achieves financial freedom after about, say, you know, 20 years or something, people are probably not going to read that because it's quite pretty much, you know, boring, I guess you can say. But when you actually have something that's enticing, which is the reason why these stories are yeah. very interesting, is people will actually open them. And we're not trying to, you know, be generating clickbait, but what we want to do is entice people to actually listen to it because I think ultimately it's the story behind it because people only see the end result a lot of times, but you don't realize there's a hard, there's a lot of hard work that's involved in getting to that journey. Yeah. You know, somebody who's been doing, uh, been investing in property for 10, 15 years, but have got like a portfolio of 100 properties, people go, wow, that 100 properties can give them X, Y, and Z, but there's a lot of hard work that's, you know, taken yeah. to get to that point of time. So, do you think it's um, yeah. with a lot of the people you do listen to, for example, it's a personal story um, and they've, uh, you know, achieved that over a certain time frame, but that time frame can never be repeated, right? 2012 to 2017, you'll never get a marker like that. You won't <laughs> ever get a marker like 2021 or 2020 no. again. So the way that they achieved and the returns that they achieved was in a marketplace that can't isn't going to be the marketplace tomorrow. And do you think by talking about a personal story um, and people leveraging that personal story to say you can achieve what I achieved, well, you can't because what actually happened was a certain marketplace. Do you see that that's a common problem where people use their personal story to encourage people to follow the same route as them down a different marketplace? 
Yeah, and you actually brought a very, very good point there. And that's that's the whole reason why we actually have these stories because we want to actually see different points of view as well. And I totally agree with you. These stories have been achieved between times that have had phenomenal growth. I mean, what it is is that, yes, it's just an example of showing people that what can be done, but the thing is, is ultimately, what is it that they've done differently to what other people are doing? Yeah. And we're not talking about the specific properties and so forth. Yes, that's important, but it is actually the success in their journey that they've actually achieved, which is basically, you know, the, the grit that they put in, the time and effort, the hard work, all those things are elements of actually achieving success. And I think a lot of people overlook that. You know, you can actually put two people in the same room. One person's really, really hardworking, has a very specific strategy in place and have achieved great success. But another person goes, oh, you know, I see this fantastic idea, but I'm just going to sit there and, and, you know, hope that, pray that something's going to happen and they might just do things mediocre. And, and the difference between the two, obviously, you'll see the results. One has achieved a, a phenomenal amount of success and another probably hasn't. And that's because of the hard work that they put in, you know, and, and also all the strategies that they've implemented. I think it's so. interesting, a couple of things there. What, one that came mm. to mind was I wonder how many of your uh, people, not just on your guests, but just generally people out there, have got a story to tell about how they made their property fortune between the middle of 2017 and the middle of 2019 because <laughs> you know in terms of doing the opposite of what everyone else is doing that is by the old warren buffett thing is you know when fear yeah. and others are not fearful and and you know i'm paraphrasing obviously um i think what's also you know the talk of success and looking to other people's success is interesting because once again there's that definition of success and um, and I agree with you that you've got to you've got to act in order to to get yeah. to achieve anything, right? And that's so, right. You've, yep. and you've got to sort of do your research, and you've got to, and that's a, that's a phrase that is oft used with often very little backing it up. What, what research is sort of the next thing to say? But mm. you do have to you do have to research. You do have to be critical in looking at at other stories, and and really critical at how the the success is measured. Um, because one thing is, it doesn't you don't focus on the individual properties. Quite frankly, I think. Real success is to focus on those to see how those decisions have have um, played out or not, but but you can't actually do that unless you actually do act like you're saying. And if you do choose a strategy and, and work forward and actually make those decisions along the way, um, I do get very uncomfortable about that volume strategy, and I and and I get that that is enticing and and aspirational for a lot of people. But I guess what what we're keen is to for you to sort of share with us. Some of the strategies that you have seen that you feel have been the most successful, and I want to sort of define success as, you know, providing growth in in equity as well as an in income, right? And I don't believe you can do both at the same time, by the way. Mm. I, I think that um, so I want to be a bit, I want to sort of put a bit of a framework around this. And I want to also ask, do you think that in this lending environment, you know, if you, if you cast your mind back 10, 15 years, it was a very different lending environment. Things tightened up at the end of the teens. Yeah. Um, yes. Is it still possible really for an everyday Aussie to really make it rich in real estate investing? <laughs> Let me answer that question a little bit later <laughs> because yeah. I think uh, it would be interesting to sort of di dissect all the different types of strategies that I've picked up, I guess, over the, the time and the years that I've actually interviewed all of these guests. And I totally agree with you. And this is my, I guess, point of view from what I've been yep. seeing because over a lot of the investors that I've actually spoken to, and even for my own investing journey, I don't think it's going to be very easy to be able to buy, you know, 10, 20 properties as it stands, even in this current market environment. The market has definitely changed. So the reality is, is that you've got to find alternative type of investments to make it work. Because ultimately, when you think about it, 
and I, I think this is an assumption I'm going to make, is that most people want to invest into property to be able to generate some form of passive income, some form of income and wealth so that they can actually either pass into generations and also be able to live a very comfortable life. And I think that's where a lot of people don't realize, okay, you can get so many properties, say, you know, buy 10 properties and after 10 years or something like that, it would have grown X amount of dollars. But because of the Australian market and the way that's been structured and the rental yield is very, very low, you're not going to be able to achieve that kind of, you know, passive income, like 100, 200K. Yeah. Let's say on average, you know, if you need about 150K a year to be able to live in Australia or even just in Sydney in general, you need to generate quite a lot of passive income from your yeah. property portfolio. And in order to do that, and if it's returning, say, you know, 2 or 3% return per year, even actually that's a gross value, you're going to have to have a lot of properties, which yeah. is not realistic. And, and for the people who have successfully well, actually, achieved that. it's not necessarily a lot of properties, a lot of value in property. So you, know, you, could, have, you could have two yeah. properties with total $4 million. You could have 10 properties with a total of $4 million. So it, it doesn't come back down to the, the volume of properties, but the actual amount of equity tied up that you hope to deliver a return on. Hmm. Or, or sell them down so that way you can mm. actually generate the rental yeah. income that you can get. And, and that's what I've seen. You know, I, I, in my personal situation, I don't own very many properties. And, but the thing is, is in order to be able to generate that kind of rental income, there's no way that, you know, with the couple of properties I currently have, that's going to be able to live, you know, full retirement. Yeah. So I've had to look at alternative ways to be able to draw some of the equity out and invest into other opportunities that yeah. will actually give me a passive income to do that. And that's what I'm sort of starting to see. And, and a lot of people also realizing that you don't need to have a lot of properties to do that as well. But Tyrone, you've um, interviewed lots of people on your mm. podcast and a lot of people have um, have claimed to fame that they've achieved this. You know, we can, we've all seen these, you know, the news.com.au will constantly perpetuate these people um, mm-hmm. and, you know, the, the keys to property success and how they've got so many properties. You know, you can see on their websites and their marketing and their LinkedIn and how many properties they've got. Um, I've had these these people come to me as, as clients um, mm. and what they've said out in the media and what they've what I've actually seen when I've asked for their rates notices are completely different. Um, mm. And... <laughs> So do you actually believe that, you know, because nothing's verified, right? You're not uh, saying, okay, give me the address of that property. I'm going to look on RP data and look at when you purchased that and what you paid and what you sold yeah. it for and, and cross-check their numbers. Do you think that a lot of people are, you know, saying a different version of the truth, you know, maybe amplifying the number of properties, amplifying their growth, you know, so they can sell the dream more so then they can sell more people onto their courses and their buyers agency services, et cetera? Oh, I mean, like, I'm not going to be able to speak on behalf of all these investors, but I, I have a feeling that some of them do some, come, come onto the podcast because of that reason. And I, I have numerous people come on because they want to market and sell their businesses. But the whole idea behind our podcast is not to be selling, you know, services and products and all that kind yeah. of stuff for people. It's to actually share people's stories and to get to the heart of how they actually achieve that through their journey. Um, we don't, you know, obviously, as you said, we don't verify any of these properties. We don't go into details about, you know, how much they've earned and all that kind of stuff. But it's just for them to be able to sh- share the journey because ultimately people want to relate better to a story than to actually the numbers of what their properties are. They relate to, uh, you know, what, what kind of challenges did they face? You know, what were some of the aha moments that they actually, I guess, achieved through their property journey? And, yeah. and through that, people can actually learn from those lessons. And whether or not they take and apply to property, you know, that, that's really up to the individual listener. But ultimately, we're trying to share people's, I guess, journey and, and to be able to tell a background story behind the why and to actually increase the motivation for people to actually take action to do something yeah. within property as well. 
So do, you, yeah. do you think that they're going in this confirmation bias circle though? Like we, Veronica and I would be guilty of that. Everyone's guilty of us, right? Um, it's mm. just one of our defects you'd call it. But, you know, <laughs> do you see that um, some people in the property space, because if you're someone who's a quantity strategy, right, um, and then finally you get this light bulb moment and you go, this isn't working for me. Mm. Um, we have one of these today. Um, you know, he's, he's got three properties and I'm like, all three of these properties are flawed. You know, it's a new house in Melbourne. Um, it's mm-hmm. too bad. Uh, it's in a good yeah. suburb, but you should have bought an old cottage. Um, you've got a brand new townhouse in the middle rings of Melbourne. You could have got a house for the same price. Um, yeah. but you went for a new house and he's like, oh, it's not growing. It's an apartment, an old Art Deco apartment in Melbourne. It's like the, you, you sort of start to, you know, because also you've got limited capacity, um, do you think that they just sort of get pigeonholed into this is what I do. I buy cheap properties that are high yield in arguably in not high growth areas um, mm. and then they just start kind of believing their own thing and just keep on talking that that's the best strategy rather than staying open-minded and, and going, actually, is there an alternative strategy? Yeah, and, and that's why I think the podcast brings that kind of to light because I, I've interviewed so many different stories and I've seen so many different perspectives. Yeah. You kind of, at one point, you go, which strategy actually will suit me? But I think what, what it comes down to is what story does people resonate with? So, for example, we've had engineers on the podcast, we've had developers on the podcast. Some people might come from an engineering IT background like myself and I might resonate with the next guest who might actually be talking about that and how they actually created a portfolio or started in development to be able to, achieve their financial freedom and ultimately at the end of the day what it comes down to is actually try and really get very very clear about exactly what they want to achieve and i agree with you to a certain extent the volume strategy um, works to a certain extent but it it will require a lot of work and i've known a lot of buyers agents you know people who have had a number of buyers agents have got 20 30 plus properties but it's taken them at least 15 20 years to build that but they've been buying in very low let's say low social economic yeah. um, suburbs you know between the 300 to 350 mark and they've got to buy a lot of those and it will take a little bit of time which you know can be up to a decade or so for them to actually double in value but as long as those kind of properties still cover themselves on a day-to-day basis you know the rent is actually covering the cost of the maintenance of it then it's actually okay to hold but they have to expect that it's going to take a bit of time for that to achieve the capital growth mm. whereas if you're looking for a different strategy where you can actually you know, potentially use a part of your portfolio and then look at alternative types of investing, maybe such as syndicates or joint ventures or lending to be able to generate some additional passive income through those kind of options, then that might be a complementary way of looking at how to actually tie property together, still sort of having that kind of portfolio and not tying everything to one basket. So is that Mm. the sort of way now that the lending environment is a lot tighter and people can't Mm. just keep going refinancing and buy and buy and buy and keep buying, is that the sort of the next direction that people, the property people, let's, let's, you know, you know yeah. we know that there are property people out there. Um, yeah. Is that the next direction for property people is to look at other, I mean, because I know, I, uh, I know it's a really wild, um, bad question. I know I ask a question and think of something in the middle of it, but I know from a lot of these forums and whatever that, that, there's a volume strategy. People chase that. Then they think, okay, that's not delivering me the returns. I know I'm going to go development. And so they think, yeah. I've got to syndicate, I've got to find a syndication, I've got to find a small site, I've got to go small because we can't get lots of funds, et cetera, et cetera. And I know that there's a lot of inexperience to developers that do it once, mm-hmm. you know, and that, or they might do it twice because the first time they might time yep. it beautifully and, yep. and actually make a lot of money and think, man, we yep. are yep. Midas, you yep. know, yep. Yep. and yep. then yep. they realise there's more to it. So yep. have you seen 
Have you seen a sort of a shift to that? You've seen, uh, tell us about that. Sort yeah, of thing. So, so the natural progression, this is a typical um, way, I guess, a lot of investors is they firstly start off buying a number of properties and they would have bought it over the last, say, 10 to 20 years or so. But they get to the point where they go, okay, I, I think I've got enough properties now. I want to either move into commercial or development, either one of those. It's and, and typically that's what really happens. And when they actually look at starting doing development, they start small, you know, maybe a duplex or maybe they might just subdivide and so forth. And then from there, they look at, you know, doing more joint ventures because they actually want to increase their capital base. So that seems to be the natural progression of what a lot of investors do once they've got a nice foundation. And I mean, there, there are going to be people who want to continue to just buy and hold properties and, you know, they'll be happy to do that. And some people just accumulate a, a whole lot of them. But ultimately, at the end of the day, they've got to keep asking themselves, what is it that they want to achieve? Like, you can have as many properties, but what is that kind of, what does that mean once it translates to, you know, financial freedom? Does that mean that you're going to give back to society, do, you know, all sorts of different things, or maybe you might start a new business, etc.? And that's something that I guess the stories really through those people that I interview will share those kind of journeys and so forth in there. But typically, yes, um, a lot of them jump in. Even though they've got a lot of knowledge about buying and holding, they, they sometimes get emotionally attached because they're going, okay, I'm good at buying a property and I know where to look and you know, I've done well for that. But when it comes to development, it's a completely different space yeah. and a different board game. <laughs> and I don't recommend anyone just jump into it because there's a lot to it. You know, If you want to start any uh, development, start off with someone who has experience, learn from them and follow their footsteps as well too. And, and hence the reason why there's so many stories out there of people yeah. who have been successful in development that we can learn from them as well. So on the, on the sort of like everyday sort of like, um, you know, a couple right earning, you know, two salaries, you know, where have you sort of seen that they've like gone and been really successful in development, I guess? Like what's, you know, um, and, and also when they haven't done well, you know, have you covered that much mm. on the podcast when, you know, I agree with what Veronica said, absolutely we've seen clients mm. who have got bored of doing, you know, stereotypical buying good quality <laughs> land and buying houses right. and, um I, I that's too slow for me. I want to do yeah. something a bit more interesting, right? And then they go into friends <laughs> with their brother and their the guy from work mm. and blah blah blah, right? They go and do a townhouse development. And they basically cover costs or they lose. They may make a little bit, but was it all worth yeah. all the stress? Then I also oh. see those other ones. Veronica says, well, that they time it to perfection. They buy that block of land pre when no one else really wants those big blocks and no one wants to build townhouses. And then they sell them in a hot market where everyone can't afford houses and everyone buys the townhouses or something like that. And then they go and repeat that strategy and they stuff it up the second time. Um, yeah. And they basically lose all the profit because they're buying it. They, they, they didn't really want a hot market. Now they've gone into a down market, like the market transition. So where are you seeing like that shift into commercial, like gone really well? If you take out market timing, like what's the strategies that you think people do smartly there? Well, I think that usually a lot of the developers that I see go into, or sorry, investors that go into development, start off small. And, and the easiest place to probably start off is, is rather than build something, is to actually just subdivide. So you can buy a block of land yep. and subdivide. And that's mm -hmm. what I've seen typically work well because it's, it's a very easy and simple process. When I say easy, is because you're not actually involved in the construction phase. Um, there's a lot of paperwork that's involved. There's a lot of dealings with council, and that can take a bit of time. But at least the risk is very, very low compared to actually going into working with a builder because, mm. as you've probably heard, in this current market, there's a lot of builders who have also gone under. Um, costs of supply, materials, resources have all gone up so much that it's become extremely expensive to build, and therefore the margins have all been reduced due to the fact. So people who actually just go and basically buy a block land, subdivide it, you know, maybe one into two, one into three, whatever they find, is actually quite a simple way to jump into development. And, and I typically would like to see a lot more people do that because it's actually 
a, a very low risk kind of strategy because if you can sell the block of land, then you've actually overcome a lot of the hurdles because people can't really quite imagine what does it look like once I've you know, got a block of land and built my house on. And if you can market that well, you actually can do it very, very well in development just by you know subdividing blocks and so forth. And you get in pretty quickly, you know, get in, get out, six to 12 months, you probably have a subdivision completed and that's very low risk. Whereas if you stay for construction, say maybe a four pack, like a townhouse four pack, or maybe a low rise development, like a, a unit and so forth, you can be in there for anywhere between two to four years. And I can talk from personal experience because I had been <laughs> during COVID, we are supposed to be selling our development off. Unfortunately, when COVID hit, the market went quiet and we, we sat on our development for the next digital 12 months and we didn't make any money after that. So, you know, I, I went back to the strategy of just subdividing and kept it really, really simple. So I can definitely talk from experience. But I think that's kind of where people, if, if they're looking at development, that's where they probably should be looking at starting as a simple. And my recommendation, probably don't go in with family and friends because that's always um, a, a troublesome area because <laughs> I've seen that happen too often. And that's what they usually do first. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that they're thinking that that's spreading the risk, you know, but yeah. I guess the reality is that you've got too many decision makers, don't you? And that's right. I think too that exit strategies is really important, isn't it? I mean, like if you go into a development, you think you're going to subdivide and, and, and build. And then one of your exit strategies is to just simply subdivide and sell or get a DA and sell or, or build yeah. and sell or yeah. hold for a while or whatever. You know, there's yeah. multiple exit points. Um, what about, and it is interesting about the whole um, thing about investors getting bored because it is like, you know, for a lot of people, it's a big pastime thing, you know, and mm. they will you know, tell you the great stories at um, barbecues and all the rest of it. But do people come on and tell you their fails? Yeah, we do. We always ask about, you know, what are some of the, the challenges that they face, some of the worst case scenarios. And I've yeah. heard of a lot of them, you know. So people have bought houses where they've had, um, you know, it, it catch on fire and, and then they've had to, you know, go and claim insurance to be able to get that. I've had people who vandalise homes inside. They've even had Harley Davidson's driven inside the middle of a lounge room. I, you know, I don't know how that happened. but yeah, Where are some they really, buying? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's actually in Sydney. That's the funny thing, you know, in, in, in the oh, northwest of Sydney. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah I, i've heard most of the kind of horror stories and I, I guess those are sort of learning lessons that people have realized that okay one of them obviously didn't get insurance and that was the huge learning lessons because they thought you know i'd be okay but you know that's one thing other things that I've, I've heard as well is getting a good property manager that's a key key component if you're going to have property make sure you do shop around or not shop around but interview multiple property managers before you choose one because one wrong property manager can make a huge yeah. difference to you know yeah. your property and you can lose thousands thousands dollars of that um yeah so many different stories yeah. i could go on but like you can see that there are it's not as easy as it sounds you know i personally have been through it myself when i bought my, bought my first property in a regional town because it's like four or five hours away i couldn't access it and that tenant that i try to self-manage myself i failed because you know he took advantage yeah. of me knowing that i was a landlord and i was still young and he never yeah. paid his rent on time so yeah, I, yeah. You know, I, i've learned that lesson never ever do it yourself so, yeah. yeah. Tyrone, I mean, I guess um, speaking to all these people, like um, for myself, uh, you know, speaking to people every day or different situation, it's always just looking at something I understand, ask some questions and, you know, why did you do that and why did you buy that property and what made you think that and what did you pay for and then what's that worth today and do all these calculations. You would have done something similar um, through all these episodes. So, so if you built your own, like the Tyrone Shum property philosophy, if you were going to go out and take all those learnings um, and let's say it was not doing the development side and subdividing, mm. but it was just trying to buy 
a quality asset. What would be yeah. your version of that? Like what would be, what do you really, what, would, what is a quality asset in your eyes? Well, I, I can definitely talk from experience because my first purchase that I made was, was not a quality asset because in hindsight, this is what the beauty about going back in hindsight, I bought in a regional town and I thought, okay, this is wonderful because it was generating positive cash flow. You know, I bought it for like 100000 it was generating $260 a week. That's, that's easily, yeah, it was a very, <laughs> very good property in that sense because financially it looked great. But didn't was, cost I, you anything. It didn't cost me anything. You know, I was really happy. <laughs> But the thing is, is that there was zero capital growth because five years later, I went to get a valuation on it and it was still only worth $105,000 that I purchased for. It was painful. That was a really, really painful lesson. And I go, man, that five years, I could have purchased easily a property literally around the corner from where I used to live for that same amount of uh, value and I would have at least tripled or even quadrupled the value of there after five years as well. And I think that's the key thing is to look at, firstly, metro areas. I think stick within somewhere that's that's very high in demand, um, particularly the, me- the metropolitan areas, would be Sydney, Melbourne, yeah. you know, all the ones in the various different states. And, and stick within, you know, at least 20 or 30 kilometres within the city area because yeah. that's where people are going to be living and w- that's where the, the, the pan will be as well. Um, I personally wouldn't invest in, into any type of units. I've, I've seen, you know, units being successful if you, if you buy the right time, but you don't own any value of land. And I always look for something that has a good value of land on it. And if I can, opportunities to be able to develop on it, that's the kind of, you know, really, really good fundamental. But if I was to buy, I guess, any property, a really good quality property, it'd have to be a house, you know, house with land, solid, if you can get solid um, tenants in there, good rental return. And also ensure that there's you know a lot of high demand in the area, especially around good public transport, schools, and all those kind of things. The kind of same fundamentals that I think you talk about with your clients, yeah. Chris and, and Veronica. Yeah. That, that's what I would initially start off with. And once I start building and getting a few type, type few of those type of properties initially, then I would start looking at seeing how I can actually generate more cash flow, not only from those, but drawing out the equity and investing into alternative investments to be able to generate the cash flow. Yeah. Because as we discussed right at the beginning. Unfortunately, property rentals in Australia doesn't return very high in terms of its actual rental return. The capital growth is phenomenal. You know, if you hold on to these properties. Can be. Or can be. be. Yes, can be. (laughs) You're right. It's just not that regional town. Yeah, Um, not the regional town. (laughs) Just (laughs) Just out of curiosity, um, on that regional town, so you're getting $260 a week, which is, say, you know, 13 grand a year, right? Then you're self-managing it to save yourself, you know, a bit of money, but that didn't work out very well. But did you pay any money maintaining the property, though? Like, did you have to fix the roof? Did you have to paint it you know uh, so you're okay there but i mean that's sometimes you know a big yeah, issue that right? you, that you, been, you yeah. wipe out you know because over five years you think i'm making 13 grand a year you gotta pay tax on it um yes. yeah, you can minus off the small amount of interest and then you gotta so you might have been making four or five grand a year in your pocket so 20 grand yeah. over five years on that 100 grand that's assuming yeah. no maintenance um yeah. and shooting and assuming you can sell it because you know just because you bought it for 100 grand and the, so the bank says a hundred thousand valuation the reason it's not going up is because demand's not strong and supplies, you know, probably supplies. Not a, and so do you have any problems when you wanted to sell it as well? Did you, or did you sell oh. it to another investor like yourself? 
If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. No, I was actually a local school teacher, so that was very fortunate for me. <laughs> I mean, Occupy. Otherwise, yeah. I, I, I actually, that one was on the market for almost a, a year. It yeah, took that go, long wow. to do sell. Yeah, so uh, I learned from ouch. my experience. I go, ouch, yeah. yeah. And mm. that, that money was literally tied up for, for at least a year for me to be able to get into something else. Yeah. So, yeah. What about it, flipping properties? Um, yeah. You obviously, uh, you, you know, what you, you know, what you said, Tyron, is you know, it's definitely um, aligned. I mean, in Sydney, I would definitely say that apartments in you know in uh, affluent areas where houses are very expensive, you know, mm. uh, you know, you know, Balmain, Mossman, uh, Fairlight, Bondi, Kelby Hill. Can I give you an example on that? Like literally, so we're recording this in the end of May. And mm. um, I won't tell exactly where this apartment was. Uh, it's in the Eastern Beaches. We bid at bid and bought this property on Saturday. They're just gone. The market's flattened. You know, clearance rates mm. are sitting in the low 60s in Sydney now. That means it's a pretty balanced market, but it's edging towards it being a buyer's market. What normally happens in a buyer's market, you don't get much stock around. And the reason I bring this up is because this is definitely not the sort of time that I would have expected to see 15 registered bidders for wow, an apartment. Wow, wow. And we bought it as an investment for client and, and had a, the only thing it had that, that was wrong with it really from our point of view, small block, top floor, north facing, you can see the ocean, um, you know, it's an older style, it's got a big garage, it's got a lovely big balcony, it's private, you know, high high part of the suburb, um, not s- surrounded by houses mostly, some yep. units but but not overly dense. Like it's just got tick, 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 all these things. The only thing it didn't have was a lift, right? Um, oh. Fifth. I think that's essential. No, exactly. You can deal with that in, in these old buildings. Only six in the block. No common walls. Honestly, it was just it was just like, wow. oh, my God, really hard to find. Fifteen registered bidders. Um, now, I, I, I could quickly look up the growth that they had achieved in the time that yeah. they owned it, but that's just an example of where yeah. the small, um, a small subset of the unit market can do very well over yeah. time. Um, yeah. but well, it's also an I, example of the, um, the seagull effect, right, where at the moment the seagulls are still around, right, the buyers, but they just get waiting for that one chip one to chip. come on. And <laughs> that's right. Then that's that's the apartment you went to, and all the fifteen seagulls went to it, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, looks like you obviously would have had to pay a decent amount for it. Did you reckon you got it for a good price, or do you reckon that the competition pushed it to a price bigger than last year? Just out of curiosity. Um, here. Okay, so we we have a very um, our process, which I've I've outlined on the podcast before, our process of pricing a property, and so it was sl- it was two point seven percent above that. Right. So we have sort of a, a, a region of tolerance or a range of tolerance for, you know, absolute A-grade property um, and that was within our range of yeah. tolerance and that range of tolerance will contract and expand depending on market conditions as well. So that was yeah. within our range of tolerance. We were, it was the upper end um, yeah. but, you know, absolutely comfortable at that level. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it just, just goes to show, though, that A-grade yeah. property, so I was just sort of, I just, 
wanted to share that because it was yeah. so, so unusual. We got there. We always count the registrations. It was 15. So I was not expecting that in this market. <laughs> no, it's every real estate's um, dream, right? They uh, oh. having multiple people yeah. bidding. They know it's going to sell. They don't have to worry about um, doing too much work for the next 15 minutes. But, Tyron, yeah. I was going to ask a question around the, um, yes, yeah, so that person Flipping. goes and buys that, that uh, house in a good area. What's your thoughts around the renovation strategy and flipping? I mean, to be honest, I've seen it work amazingly for some clients oh, yeah. and I've seen it yeah. definitely um, not, oh. you know, add more than a dollar for a dollar. I think I'm probably the over-capitalism, uh, capitalism, capitalist, capitalized, you know, bucket at the moment. But, you know, the flipping strategy, you know, is it what it's, people make it out to be or what's your thoughts on it? Well, I'll, I'll sort of talk from actually one story who I interviewed a well-known guest that's, you know, been on many TV shows. And, and this was really interesting that she's a very well-known renovation expert. And she said to me in the last moments of our interview, because I said to her, you know, what, what do you think you would have changed or looked at hindsight? You know, what do you think is interesting about your journey? And she said, look, if I actually held on to every single one of those properties that I renovated and still selling them, I wouldn't have to have, you know, done so many I guess deals that that I did there and those properties mm. now would have been like you know 20 times worth more than what the renovated profits gotcha. actually earned from there so hopefully that kind of gives you a bit of insight <laughs> into that um, I definitely agree with renovating and adding value to any property because the thing is, is it'll attract really good tenants and, and the beauty about attracting good tenants is that they'll look after the property even longer as yeah. well too and you need to also come up with the times if you're purchasing an old property that's 20 30 years old and, you know, you're trying to get a tenant in there, there's a very good chance that you'll probably attract an older tenant if it's not been renovated or updated. Yeah. Whereas the newer tenants, I mean, the, the sorry, renovated, newly kind of looking type of properties attract a very good quality tenant because they say, wow, this is a nice place. I want to call it home. I want to stay here as long as possible. And, yeah. and that's, I think, a, a very huge, huge value add. And especially if you've done it at the right time, you can easily get a valuation, pull the equity out, and then jump on to purchase the next one. And that's typically yeah. what a lot of people do rather than sell it. Flipping is definitely possible, but after you pay all the expenses or the costs, the stamp duty, the taxes, et cetera, you're really yep. not left with very much. And then it's yep. just, you know, you do it again and again and again. So uh, I, yeah. I've seen a lot of people say, look, buy, renovate, and hold. You know, that's probably yep. the strategy that, that people are taking on now. And what it's about interesting. the hot hey, you go, before, before you finish on the uh, on the flipping, it's, it's interesting you say that. It seems to be that there's been a shift away from that sort of that, that churn and turnover and the quick the quick profit, the quick buck. One of those uh, renovation experts, I remember dissecting their claims uh, on their website some time ago, and there was this claim that they made three hundred thousand on on average on every, or well, a minimum three hundred thousand, I think it was, mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. every renovation. And and I was like, well, that sounds good. Then actually digged in, dug into the the numbers on that, and you know, some of those properties took them ten years to sell. Right. Course, so that's how they made their three hundred thousand dollar gain. So you know what I mean. You have got to have a cast a critical eye on some yeah. of these claims as well. But I think um, when your when your business is selling the dream of something as opposed to just doing the something yourself, you know, then mm. obviously the claims may bear a little bit more um, examination potentially. But oh, I think yeah. that the climate also that the ready monies in terms of borrowing. I think the lending environment probably has curtailed some of that activity in that segment mm. of the market as, as well would you think that has there been a change 
I, I think so. And, and I think the, the biggest challenge that in, in I guess, any environment is, is basically at this point in time, um, the lending has actually come quite tight because they're, they're starting to see that people have taken out so much money and some people are overcommitted. And, and that's the reason why I guess obviously rates have increased because there's so much cash that's floating around and, and therefore, you know, the lending environment has, uh, I guess, restricted. Um, especially in the private sector, we're starting to see things start to turn around and um, I guess rates are coming down in, in that sense. Um, or not coming down, uh, going up a little bit from our point of view, just to be able to sort of curtail that as well. Yeah. Um, but like, I think what, just to touch on your point about the renovation strategy and, and what's happened there in the past, I think what that happens is <laughs> it's the media that, like, for example, the block, uh, you know, um, I think that's mm. probably a classic one that we've seen. We want to be able to get a fantastic story and be able to see some kind of amazing headline because that's what attracts people's attention. Otherwise, if you just say, oh, this person's just done a fantastic and beautiful home but not made any money, no one's going to go and watch it. It's going to be pretty pretty boring, to be honest, um, and yeah. we'll just get tethered in there. And, and people don't like talking about those things, but that's the actual reality of life is that the people who are successful are the ones who do the pretty much mundane, boring type of things. And yeah. you know, you're not going to be able to ask me, Tyron, what was your kind of really amazing story there? I don't really have an amazing story in the sense that I, I've you know, done a huge development that's made millions of dollars. I've just followed a simple formula and just continue to just reinvest. And that's how I've been able to achieve the success that I've, I've you know, built today. Yeah. I so, love the boring story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it is pretty funny, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it is so true, though. It's the ones who have bought good assets. Probably a lot, some of them don't know that they were that good. Um, yeah. you know, maybe they just bought and they lived there and then they upgrade and they kept it. They thought, let's keep it because they thought it was good, but they didn't realize how good it was. And then the markets, mm. you know, the city grew and then that suburb gentrified more and more and, right. you know, really took off. Um, and it's the ones who have done that, you know, multiple times over 10, 20 years. Um, then they come to me and usually a bit later, you know, maybe late 40s, et cetera. And then you sort of unwinding, oh, you bought that house in the 90s and it's you still got it, right? Um, yeah. And you've done that three or four times and it's usually the most boring people who have done the best, to be honest. Um, that's right. And, it's your uh, millionaire next door. That's basically them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and the ones who have got the most, it's usually, you know, in my mind, it's usually the ones that we've got to unwind a lot of this um, and, mm. you know, there's a lot of emotion attached to it and decisions that they've made and that, you know, they've got to unwind that that stress, I guess. Um, but, I mean, there's so much. I mean, you've got the quantity strategy, but what that's driven off is hotspotting, right? Um, mm. You need to know the right location to buy right now. Where's the spot? And, um, you know, it is sort of investor sort of level one thinking, right? Like mm. the issue is I just need to know the location. Give me the location and where to buy Magic it. pill. And I yeah. can solve the problems. What's your thoughts around the whole hotspotting movement? Because it's so enticing to play in that space. Um, I mean, I, I've... Um, you know, just recently you've got a client who sent me through uh, a list of suburbs that a buyer's agent had given them and said, we're buying mm. here. This is where the growth is, right? These are the suburbs. We, and, and, you know, you want to work with us, um, this is where we're buying. And and some of them have actually charged to find out those suburbs, right? They charge a certain oh, fee of course, yeah. to it's tell them the suburbs, right? Um, yeah. So what's your thoughts around the whole hotspotting thing and um, is it really just people trying to sell um, services? This is kind of controversial and I probably, uh, what I'm going to say is probably not going to resonate with a lot of people. I don't believe in hotspotting as such. Um, and, 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 and to be honest, um, the reason why I say that is because ultimately the first thing you've got to ask yourself is what is your strategy and also what is your end goal as well? Because yes. if you don't yeah. have that clear in your mind, 
then you're really just chasing after like a magic bullet because when you get the the suburb or the location, it's only one component of your whole strategy. You know, there's other things that you can consider. You've got to consider, does this deal stack up? Is it actually going to generate revenue for, you know, my goal? Is it actually going to be one of the 10 properties? There's an example of my whole strategy and plan. It's only one aspect of it. And, and that's the thing. People just focus on that one thing, which is location. But that's only, you know, part of it. As we've talked about in this, most of the podcast, is fu- the fundamentals is most important, which is yeah. you know, the location, the actual type of property that you're buying and all, all that. So hotspotting, in my opinion, is only very small part of it if you only just focus on that you're really missing out on the whole thing and i've known people who have purchased in you know numerous properties in different locations all around you know australia and haven't even gone and chased after where the best locations are they've just bought basically on a very boring old strategy and say buy one property every year they can in different locations that have potential you know growth and good fundamentals and then you just let the market do its thing it's yeah. almost like dollar cost averaging when you think about it from a share market point of view. Mm. You know, if a stock is actually doing really well, you obviously just hold on to it. But if it starts to drop back, then you maybe add a little bit more and just keep watching it go up. Same thing like Tesla shares. I wish I had purchased them from the first day and then just kept buying them. I'd be, you know, <laughs> very, yeah. very extremely well off. Uh, but no one knows that. You, so it's the same are idea. A, are you a property person talking about shares? That's unusual. <laughs> <laughs> Alternative investments. <laughs> I was using that as an example, but uh, yes, you're right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you sort of said there, so you need a strategy in your end goal, and that's why I got a bit excited because the reality is a lot of that hotspotting isn't around the end goal. It's around the short-term mm. potential gain and buying an under-market mm. value. I mean, oh, oh, I, see that I bought an under-market value. Do you think anyone would sell their property under market value? You bought it at what the market value is. That's the market. Um, no, you were the market. You yeah. bought it. You paid market value. You made the market, exactly. Yeah. Um, and you probably overpaid because you thought you were getting a bargain. You got a bit enthusiastic. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, and, and so what they're doing is that, you know, maybe they say, oh, I've got a bank val or, you know, I saw yeah. something similar sold in seven months' time and I made this growth. And it's so enticing that you can replicate yeah. that. Um, and, yeah, yeah. Um, what matters is what that where that person is in three years time or five years time and when did they exit exactly right. what money mm. did they spend on renovation what did that what did they what's their after tax return and what did they put into the property to get that mm. and what could they have done with that money and etc and so I think that's the problem with this hot spotting it's which focuses on that short term potential and if it goes wrong um, the, the buyer's agent is already off to the next location mm. um, exactly and they just leave their their clients and the Oh, sorry, mate, it didn't work for you, but I'm focused on these clients in this pocket and it's really working for them. Sorry, mate, you yeah. know, and that's another thing I see what it is. It's all about um, you, just sort of washing you your hands. Yeah, you would see that a lot more than I do. I hear the stories as well from individuals mm. often that get caught there and, and individuals that too late realise that they contributed to the growth in an area that others like them contributed to yeah. that same growth, yeah. which is all courtesy of someone whose data pointed them in that direction. Anyway, so let's... Um, you, sorry, I cut you off earlier, Chris, when you were asking Tyron about commercial because that is something that, uh, that you know, we talk about investors getting bored with their just mm. buy and hold strategy. Then they might decide they want to do a flip. They might decide they want to do a development. Another thing that, that um, you know, diehard property investors like to do is then say commercial. So mm. what have you seen in that space? <laughs> I've met a lot of, I guess you can say, investors who actually started off in residential and then realized, hold on, there's actually a better yield in commercial. And and there are some, you know, pros, but also cons with commercial. I think a lot of people who are chasing yield, which wants that kind of rental return, um, go for commercial. 
But the thing is, I guess you've got to also understand that you're not able to leverage or lend as much as well too. For example, let's just take residential, you can lend up to 80% most of the time. With commercial, you can only really rent, lend up to maybe a 60, 65%. And I think the challenge that people don't realize is that you've got to come up with a huge deposit in order to be able to come in and, and purchase a commercial property. But the, I guess the upside is that, you know, if you get a good commercial tenant in there that they're in locked in for like a five-year plus five-year option lease, they can pretty much manage everything. You know, your maintenance yeah. costs are very, very low. They handle all that because they're mm-hmm. their own business. But the challenge that you'll face is that from, from my perspective and from my own experience as well is that if you do have to get a new tenant in, it can take anywhere between 6 to 12 months to find a new tenant, especially mm-hmm. businesses. And as you've seen with COVID, most of the businesses actually have been working from home. So they go, what's the point of having an office as well? So I know that from personal experience because I also have commercial property and you know the last tenant has taken me at least six months to come in to you know, rent out one yeah. of our retail premises. So there are some pros and cons. I mean, the beauty of what I like commercial is, yes, the maintenance. I don't have to get a call every so month or say, oh, I need a tap to be replaced or, you know, there's some kind of mold damage in the carpet and blah, blah, blah. I just go, okay, they can worry all about that because it's their, you know, own premises that they need to look after. But yeah, I, I, I've known a lot of, I guess you can say, property investors who have a huge, huge portfolio of commercial property and they're all, you know, saying how good it is. But I think the challenge that people face is that getting into it initially is probably the hardest and the most challenging because you've got to come up with a, quite a large deposit. Once you've been able to get a deposit and you're able to fund it, just like residential, you can pull the equity out and continue to buy more. But it is starting to see, you know, the market's tightening up because commercials talked about quite a lot as well too. And I'm seeing that the commercial sector um, isn't getting the same returns as it used to be, you know, a couple of years ago before COVID. So there's been a lot of changes. Have you seen many people, um, the rent vesting strategy was a very common one. Um, mm. yeah, and this is where so lending, is. lending yeah. matters a lot. Um, yep. And this is why rent vesting did actually make sense um, pre-2014 for instead of buying your home. Um, yeah, you may live in one of those homes and use a six-year rule, you know, get one of them growing tax-free and you know, right. rent somewhere else and rent your home out. Um, but it might not have been your home. But that was when you could lend a lot more for investment properties. Um, are you still seeing the rent vesting strategy to, because it does really entice a lot of young, young first-home buyers because they're like, I don't want to leave my city life. I don't want to, I just want to, mm. and I haven't got that much of a deposit. I'm never going to be able to buy a home. I'm just going to go and rent where I want to live and buy a regional town or buy a cheap apartment or, you know, just follow this hotspotting strategy. You're seeing that it's still, um, yeah, something that's really perpetuated out there. To be honest, not really as much as I thought. Um, yeah. I've noticed lately a lot of people are starting to consider buying their own property because by the time you actually work out the the actual cost of actually renting compared to actually buying one, it works out to be almost the same at this point in time because the rates are still relatively low. Even though we've had only a quarter percentile increase, when you look at the comparison, it's still quite affordable to be able to purchase yeah. a, a property to live in. Um, yes, you might not get into the same location that you would prefer to be in the city, but with COVID and people working from home, a lot of people have actually started moving out further in more yeah. of a lifestyle location. You know, I, I saw a huge amount of people move up the coast because the lifestyle was beautiful. They had a lot more space. Cost of living was a little bit less and also the cost of buying a property was, you know, tremendously cheaper compared to Sydney. And they can work from home because, you know, they've got internet access and so forth. So I, I think what I've seen is that the rent vesting if you're just starting out and you don't have much money to be able to afford to buy a home, then yeah, renting and then buying a cheaper home or cheaper investment property is probably the way to go. But if you're looking for a home to, to firstly live in, it, it seems like more people buying a home now, yeah. which is why I've seen a lot of people, I guess you can say, have that SCOMA effect during COVID because they want to purchase a home for themselves at that point in time because they're worried that you know prices will continue to go up. 
and that's what's kind of happened as well. So have you, have, have, you, have you thought about when you say your headlines? Um, yeah, I built a six million dollar property portfolio. I saw this one, uh, <laughs> one guy that's um, I'm trying to won't say too much information that tells you who it is, but he's been all over the media recently and bought a nice car. And um, I know what he sells. Um, you know, <laughs> these are not great assets. These are yeah. assets that you know we'll see with the clients from years down the line that have made no growth that have. Um, and then the commissions in that space are massive. Um, oh, massive, yeah. You know, and that's why he's got that car, you know. Um, mm. And, you know, it's been perpetuated over the news that this is the, the size of his portfolio. And, um, you know, it's interesting on the article, it did say how much his debt was. And that, that, that's where my question is, you know, how often do you think that people really mention how much debt they've got attached to it um, and what their net portfolio position is? And <laughs> you know, and, and what their real after-tax return is? Or do you think that people just like to talk about either the number of properties they've got or how many millions it adds up to their portfolio, mm. not what their net position is and how much money they've really made? Yeah, it's a media selling, you know, ploy, I guess you can say, because ultimately they're trying to use the media to their advantage to do their free PR marketing, as you can say. that That's my perception on this one. And I think that ultimately if you actually look into it deeper, a lot of these people don't actually earn quite a lot of money from their property portfolio. You know, you can actually just do some random numbers in the background and, and, you know, just work it out yourself. And that's the reason why they have a business because they need that business to be able to fund their cash flow. Um, that that was th- going to be... <laughs> I, I, I'm, being, I'm telling the truth. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that because it does seem to be that a pathway, a common pathway into being a property expert, and I'll put rabbit ears around that because as we've learned on this podcast in the past, you don't need qualifications to be a property expert. You mm. do if you want to sell or buy property, but if you want to sell a system or, a, you know, a, a strategy, you mm. don't actually need any qualifications. So I always makes me amazed, you know, I'm always amazed at the just the, that lovely altruistic generosity of people who, because I've made my millions, I want to share them with you. I want to share the secret with you. And it's like they're not <laughs> giving it away because they no. care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, and that, that for me, part of my integrity and also a part of my ethics is that, you know, you want to be able to ensure that you help the client at the end of the day. I mean, you, you obviously want to try and share what you've done, but you can't, you know, say to the client that this is the best way to go because then you're basically giving advice and that's not what people should be doing. You should be actually giving the client more options. And I think that's their strategy in the ploy to be able to get people's attention. And as you know, there's tons and tons of media articles out there and in order mm. to get that kind of attention, they need to have these massive headlines. But you've got to do your due diligence and for the listeners out there, make sure you do actually find out the people, ask for references, check up on their history, actually show, get them to show you their portfolio and make sure that they're actually stacking up. Because if they're not making much money, like twenty, thirty thousand dollars a year, then is it really what you want to do? You know, besides mm. having so many properties, I don't think so. You know, like yeah. I've I've gone through all that strategy myself, and I thought, oh, I'm going to buy ten properties t- over ten years, and that was the common theme: buy mm. one property every year, and you'd hope to be able to earn about hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars a year. I tried that; it doesn't work, mm. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, yeah. in this market. So that's why I had to start looking at alternative strategies. And fortunately, because I was able to find these alternative strategies. I've been able to invest about a mil and generate about 20 to 30% return on my, you know, mill there and getting a passive income from that rather than yeah. have to buy so many properties because it's not, it's not really, it's, it's too far out of reach at this point in time because I don't necessarily want to put a million dollars down on one property. It's too much of a risk. And yeah. that's the reason why I've had to spread my risk out. Do you actually, on your podcast though, I mean, yeah. uh, I'm not sure about this as asking a question. I mean, there's other big property podcasts that you have to pay to get on, right? Um, and, you know, so really it is a marketing tool. They use their personal success 
as the clickbait, I guess. But the person's paying to be on there. Uh, and the yeah. reason they're asking them on is because they're paying. And um, do you kind of sort of do that when you ask, when people are asking to come on or you're asking people to come on? Like, are you sort of saying, look, I agree with their strategy or I just want to share their story or yeah. how does it sort of work in your mindset? Because, you know, it, yeah, if you're sharing their story, as long as you're asking the right questions, then it's all good. But it's it's like, um, I guess it's the danger of bringing on people, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, and that's true. And I'll, I'll be very transparent as well. I don't charge any of my guests to come onto the podcast. I mean, both of you have been on my podcast. I've not asked you for a fair ending. So you know, yeah. I'm not getting you to come onto the podcast to promote your business or anything like that, nor am I asking you to pay any fees. I, I genuinely started off the, the actual podcast because I wanted to learn. It was personally for me. <laughs> I initially started mm-hmm. and I thought a lot of people wanted to hear him. So I thought, all right, well, let's just share it. And it just organically grew and people started liking hearing the stories and so forth. So we continue that. Um, nowadays, obviously, the podcast grows so much and there's a lot of people interested in coming on because they know they get a lot of free publicity and you know a lot of uh, generation from that. Uh, but I do vet a lot of the investors that come on board and I've got to make sure you know at the end of the day, their story is going to fit with the audience because there's no point talking about something that people don't want to listen to. So mm. we do a lot of that vetting and make sure that a lot of the people that come on have that kind of right fit but also can you know share their story in detail and in general. Uh, yeah. In general, um, in uh, more of a, uh, I guess, emotional side and a why side, to, so that way people can really understand what their motivations are, not yeah. to actually go into the podcast for the sake of selling. Oh, I've got a million dollars property worth this. Mm. Come and use my services. No, I, I, if they yeah. start doing that, it gets cut out. Sorry, I, I do think it's quite common out there, though. It's, it's mm. if you sort of look around, you'll see that there's a serial um, spruker. Um, mm. That, that does go around the news articles and then the other people's podcasts. We get them trying to come on our podcasts and Veronica and I have a bit of a laugh um, <laughs> um, in, a, in a nice way because we, we just can see straight through, you know, what they're trying, the way they even they pitch, um, whether they yeah. do it themselves or through a PR agency. It's just like if you're getting the point, you're thinking about yourself here and you're not thinking about what the value and the, the et cetera. And so, um, <laughs> but I just think it's a, it's a good thing for, I mean, our listeners probably don't fall for this, but, you know, when when you see it out there in the podcast space, is so many people are just, you know, going around spruiking rather than, um, yeah, and, 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 and paying to go on people's podcasts. Yeah, it happens too often. I had a had an actual guest recently come onto the podcast and he said to me, he went onto a well-known podcast, paid quite a lot of money for it and he was so disappointed that he didn't get any leads through that. And I was like, yeah. oh, that, I'm so sorry to hear about that. And it's happening too common. You know, it's just it's sad to hear because ultimately what the listener really wants to hear is not for them to be selling businesses because if you keep selling and selling to people, people will just get turned off and will not listen to the podcast anymore. They want to actually oh, yeah. generally hear some real good quality information where there's genuine information that they can actually learn from. Yeah. And if they can deliver that value, then the rest, you know, comes naturally. Yeah. And we've never tried to sell anything on the podcast, yeah. um, you know, so... Yeah. So on to that value point, um, have you got a property Dumbo for us? You've, you've had lots of people on the, the show. What's, uh, I guess, a story? It doesn't have to be, a, you know, you don't have to say the guest who told you that story or it's your personal story, but something we can learn from. Yeah, I, I think that the thing, as you've probably realized, I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of investors out there and I've seen plenty of strategies out there. And I, I'll come back to it again. Don't be fooled by the strategy. Don't be fooled by how many, I guess, investment properties other people have. Ultimately, these are people's journeys and stories and they've shared them for a reason because that's their success. You've got to define what you want to achieve as a goal 
once you've defined that, then go out there and surround yourself with the people who are very, very good in what they do and, and trustworthy and interview a lot of people um, before you actually commit to anyone and, and surround yourself with a fantastic team to help you build that strategy together to be able to achieve the goal that you want. And, and this so it, doesn't have to be is, property. It can be for anything. Is the Dumbo then the person who doesn't even worry about any of that? They just basically fall hook, line and sinker for the promise. Yes, and that's basically a good marketing spruker campaign that they can get into. So it's a good one, Tyrone, because you think about it. Um, you know, uh, I've seen this as well that they, you know, the they go into the cook uh, the cottage factory, I guess, the cookie cutter, mm, cutter advice, cookie, yeah. um, and they know they're getting cookie cutter advice. The, the person even says, "I'm giving you cookie cutter <laughs> advice." Um, I'm not telling anything about your income, about your other yeah. assets, about other decisions you could make. Uh, I'm not going to ask you any questions about that. This is what we're doing. If you want to work mm. with us. You got to come on board because this is where I'm taking our investors, and um, I, you know, you got to sort of stop. You know, is it the personal accountability? And this is where the ethics thing comes into it. It's like the person making that decision has got to take on some responsibility. Yeah, the spruker is sold to them, but the person falling for the spruker um, is also got to sort of, you know, play a bit mm. smarter, right? Um, mm. And and so I do think that that's it's a key thing is you got to make sure that the advice you're getting is tailored. It's it's thinking about things. It's stopping you potentially you know, not doing that because they've found something in your, you know, that makes, you know, you might, you know, want to start a business next year. You might be having a baby. You might be, yeah. you know, needing to sell your house. Or, you know, there's something that they've that could stop that strategy not working for you. But I do think, you know, people do fall for the, the cookie cutter sort of um, cottage factory way too often. Totally, totally. And I think I'll add one other thing. Seek independent advice or whether it be financial advice or property advice, seek independent financial advice because I think ultimately that will protect you from a lot because there's a lot of people out there who, whether it be a real estate agent, buyer's agent or mortgage broker and stuff like that, they yeah. obviously have the interest to try and sell something to you and they'll probably give you a strategy tap around and that, that's yeah. no problem to do that. But ultimately what you want to do is seek that separate independent advice to be able to put that strategy together so that way when you're actually going out to say these different professionals, you can actually see, okay, this is my strategy. Does it fit? If it doesn't fit, then obviously keep looking. Um, yeah. So that's that's where I would that's where I've learned from, and I think that's probably a good yeah. strategy, you know, to look at. The, the, the irony in um, you know, in disclaimers, uh, I've never said this before, but the irony in in, in everything's got a disclaimer, right? You know, if you want to, this is generally in nature, and if you want to get personal financial advice, go and seek independent advice, right? Yeah, that's what the disclaimers say. The irony is, you go and get independent advice. And that person's not independent. Um, and, you know, even a financial advisor <laughs> isn't independent. Um, true. true. You know, they don't probably understand property. So they've already got a bias. they got a yeah. bias. So they're super fun and they're shares. Um, yeah. And uh, you know, they, they say that we're here, you know, but then they're always going to be biased and they don't understand what you think about doing. So then they're biased to what they know, et cetera, like that. So it's really hard in, in to, to get genuine independent advice um, mm. uh, from anyone. Um, and so mm. it's, uh, I get what you're saying, but the practical making, finding that person is actually really difficult because everyone's sort of biased. Well, it, I think just, uh, I think a final note on that, finding that person is really difficult because no one person can provide it. And, mm. and I think it's that's, true. that's, you know, I'd say that it takes a village to buy a property and, <laughs> you know, and you've got yeah, exactly. You've <laughs> got to get your, you've got to get your advisors, um, who specialize in their area and stick in their lanes yeah. and play nice together. You know, mm. they play, it's almost like a medley. You know, if you think, if what do you call it, a, a medley race, you know, you've got to have, you know, the butterfly swimmer is really good at butterfly and the breaststroke is really good at breaststroke and, and and they do their thing and they do their thing well and as a team you get to where you want to be and hopefully you win the race. But, you know, if you go 
you know, trying to get in other people's lanes and causing havoc along the way. And that's what people do. I mean, people go to mortgage brokers. People often ask mortgage brokers as a good example for property advice because they don't know where else to go. And I get mm. that they need help. And the mortgage brokers will either give them advice or not give them advice. And if they do give them advice, often it's conflicted, it's it's inaccurate, it's uneducated, it's it's might be well-meaning. And sometimes you might get someone who actually knows something about property, and that's great. But it's it's that's the exception rather than the rule. So, yeah. um, and certainly, you know, when you come to my business, we're one of the strange buyers agents that will tell you not to buy sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> or, don't buy in Sydney, or don't buy in our area. You know, that's weird, yeah. really oh. weird too because, yes, we've got a hammer, but not everyone we look at is a nail. And yeah. But that's unusual and and it is a massive gap. It, there's a gap it, generally speaking for advice in this country. Financial planners are crying at the moment because of the cost of providing advice and then that prohibits the democratisation of that advice, you know what I mean? So we do have a real problem. So I agree with you, get independent advice, but... God, it's hard to find. It is, yeah. And, I, and maybe just to add on to that, people who have independent advice obviously don't you know, give independent advice, but maybe look at their track record and history. That's probably maybe the next best option is to find mm. people who have done what you want to achieve and then try and ask them if they can you know, share who they've used in the past because that might help as well. Yeah. Yeah, just don't be, be, be careful falling for the mentor sort of, you did mm. that, so I'm going to copy you and that strategy because then it leads down that other route that we sort of spoke about on the podcast. So, Tyron, thanks so much for coming on. It's um, been an interesting chat and, um, yeah, I'm sure Likewise. our listeners got lots out of it. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Chris. Thanks, Veronica. Lovely to have Appreciate. you on. Appreciate Thank you, Tyron. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.